Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 228. Today's big Bible question is a mouthful. How should we handle dullards, buffoons, oafs, layabouts, scalawags, gadabouts, galoots, rascals, blockheads, cads, and rapscallions? So happy Tuesday, friends. I must confess that after writing the title to today's podcast, which I kind of like because of the archaisms, the topic itself shifted quite a bit, and I'm unwilling to go back and change the title. Well, before you scream false advertising and call the Attorney General on me, don't worry. We are going to seek to answer today's title question, but we're mostly going to focus on something far deeper than how to simply deal gracefully with jerks. Our Bible readings for the day are 1 Samuel 1, Psalms 13 and 14, Jeremiah 39, and Romans chapter 1. So beginning two new books today, both of whom I'm excited about. Our focus passage is 1 Samuel 1, and that is the focus mostly because Hannah, the mother of Samuel, has become one of my heroes in the Bible, and the beginning of 1 Samuel is just amazing. Hannah seems to exude grace in the middle of absolute misery. Though it's not the same now, in the Middle Eastern culture of the time, it was incredibly difficult for a woman to be childless. That had a huge impact on the family's economic fortunes because there was nobody to work the family business or the fields, and the other women in the community tend to view childlessness as the disapproval of God. So Hannah was in a tough spot. She had a husband who loved her, but he was married to at least one other woman, and she hated Hannah, seemingly, and he was kind of an absolute blockhead. Now, while it does appear that he liked her more than his other wife, Penina, because he gave her more food, I know that's weird, we see that he's a blockhead when he tells Hannah she shouldn't be sad about not having kids because he loves her so much and his love is worth ten sons. That's quite arrogant there, buddy. And it's an insensitive thing to say to somebody who's suffering, but Hannah apparently holds her tongue with grace dealing with her husband. Another time, Hannah was in the temple praying in full view of the high priest Eli, who was also an oaf. He saw her lips moving and not hearing any words come out of her mouth. He assumed she was drunk and rebuked her. I mean, how many drunk people come to the altar of the church and kind of pray there? I Not many, but maybe that happened commonly then. I don't know. But imagine Hannah. She's pouring out her heart with loud sobs to God, and she's accused by this guy who's got plenty of his own problems, uh, of being a drunk. How does Hannah respond? With a stinging retort? Does she fly over all over him for his pretentiousness and ridiculous statement? Does she demand a well-deserved apology and ask to speak to the manager? No. She humbly tells the clod what she was praying about. Eli, to his credit, takes her at her word and blesses her, and so does God. Shortly after this, Hannah's womb is open and she is given a child and then several more. So how do you handle an oaf, clod, cad, gadabout, etc.? Well, Hannah shows us that the answer is with grace. Hannah is an embodiment of 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, which says, All of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but, on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, the easiest thing in the world when somebody insults you or gives you the finger or hollers at you or does something bad to you 
is to do it right back to them. They've earned it, right? But Peter says, you're not called to that. You're called to give a blessing. You're called to give a blessing when people insult you and do evil to you. And when you do that, you will inherit a blessing. So put that in your pipe and smoke it a little bit. But we're going to go deeper, though. I think that's pretty deep. It's very practical and spiritual. But Tim Keller today is going to join us by me reading his stuff and talk about a greater and deeper truth we see in Hannah's life, her surrender to the will of God in the midst of pain and the joy that surrender ultimately brought her. So let's read the passage and then we're going to hear from Dr. Keller. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. There was a man from Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, He always gave portions of the meal to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest, Eli, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice in his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, 
and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my lord, she said, as surely as you live, my lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and the Lord gave me what I asked for. I now give the boy to the Lord, for as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. So here's Tim Keller talking about 1 Samuel 1 and um, the surrender of Hannah to the Lord's will. He says, did you hear that? It didn't say she prayed, she got pregnant, and then she was happy. She got inner peace, she started to eat, she stopped being depressed, her face was lifted up. It didn't say she prayed, she got pregnant, she got happy. It said she prayed and she got happy, even though she had no idea she was going to get pregnant. Why? That would only be the case if she had shifted her hope to the mission of God and the son was a means to an end, not an end in itself. She'd been liberated from the cultural idol system where it says all women have to have children because she said, now I realize what real mothering means. It means to really bring life into the world. By the way, this isn't just for women. You financial types, says Keller, do you want to add value? This is real value, the mission of God in the world. You artistic types, do you want to bring beauty into the world? This is real beauty. Do you see that? Mothers, do you want to bring life into the world? This is the real life. By turning God into the center and now making money as a means to an end, now doing art as a means to an end, now having children as a means to an end, not an end in itself, not a way of getting a self, not a way of getting significance and security, you're free. What happened? Hannah had a son named Samuel, and she put him into the ministry, and he became one of the great deliverers, a penultimate Messiah, one of the deliverers who pointed forward the great Messiah to come. He rose up at a time of great crisis, and he led his people to victory over their enemies and saved them. If Hannah had not suffered, see, if God had just given her a child when she wanted a child, she would have crushed him under the weight of her expectations. She would have dangled him before Panana and said, Ha ha ha, see, I am okay, I'm all right, I'm a real woman, I had a son. He never never would have become the Savior, would he? Never. He would have needed somebody to save him. But because of her suffering and because of her sacrifice of him by sending him away, through her suffering and her sacrifice, the people were saved because she accepted not knowing how God was going to use her suffering, but simply said, I'm at peace, I've made my vow, I've changed my heart. Now do what you want, give me a son. Now it's safe for me to have him. I won't make an idol out of him. It was safe finally. It was finally safe for her to have this thing because she suffered and sacrificed and put God in the center. He became the savior. So God actually used the suffering and sacrifice of Hannah to bring salvation. Now some of you say, wow, Hannah, she loved God so much and trusted God so much she was freed from the idol systems of her culture. Well, that's her. I don't have that kind of power. Yes, you do, because you have something she didn't have. She points to it in her song in 1 Samuel 2. Do you know what it is? In her song, she says, God has lifted me up. He has taken away my disgrace. That's because God reverses things. Do you see in verse 4 of her song? The warriors now stumble and the stumblers now are empowered. In verse 5, the hungry are filled and the full are empty. The barren are fertile and the fertile are barren. God reverses things. Most interesting in her song, in verse 8, God has taken the poor off the ash heap. The ash heaps were the garbage dumps outside the city. They were so foul and they were burned. They just burned their garbage. And any poor person who actually rooted around in the garbage dump in the ash heap was the poorest of the poor. 
Yet God takes the poorest of the poor and sets them up with princes and takes the princes and sends them down to the ash heap. Well, you say, that's very interesting. So what? So everything. When Jesus Christ was led outside of the gates of Jerusalem to be executed over in the garbage area, ignominiously being crucified, which is the most disgraceful of all executions, as Jesus Christ was going out in disgrace and weakness, everybody said, that can't be the Messiah. Why? Because if you look at the forefathers of the Messiah, the penultimate forerunners of the Messiah, they were Samuel and Samson and David and Gideon, and they all brought salvation by being strong and getting glory. So they looked at Jesus and said, that can't be the Messiah. The Messiah wouldn't be weak. The Messiah wouldn't be disgraced. It can't be the Messiah. Do you know what their problem was? They were looking at the forefathers of the Messiah, but not the foremothers. They were looking at the men who were the forerunners of Jesus, but not the women. Over and over again, God gave a foretaste of the real gospel and the work of Jesus Christ in the fact he continually brought his salvation of the world through the barren, through the rejected, through the unwanted women. It's old barren Sarah, not beautiful fertile Hagar, through whom God brings the royal messianic saving seed, Isaac. It's through Leah, the girl nobody wanted, the wife Jacob didn't want. Not Rachel the beautiful and the wanted that God brings the royal messianic saving seed of Judah. Samson is born to a barren woman who shouldn't be able to have children. Samuel is born to a suffering disgraced woman. But through the suffering and disgrace of Hannah, salvation comes. If you looked at the four mothers, you would have known what Isaiah was talking about, the Messiah, when he said the one who comes to save us will suffer disgrace and will be crushed for our iniquities. Jesus experienced the reversal Hannah was talking about. Why can you and I be lifted up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ? Why can we be seated on thrones? Because Jesus went deeper than the ash heap. He literally went into the ash heap. He was not only crucified in the ash heap, but he experienced the disgrace and the punishment and the divine justice we deserve. Because our sins and our disgrace were put on him, Through his weakness and through his suffering, we're saved. You could see it in Hannah if you were looking at Hannah, not Samuel. You could see it in Samson's mother. You could see it in Leah. You could see it in all of those women. The women in the Old Testament show Jesus Christ is not just a coming king, but a suffering servant. Until you understand the true spirituality of women like Hannah, you won't know what Hannah knew. Hannah did not know exactly how God was going to use her suffering to bring about salvation. I have no idea whether she even lived long enough to understand that. Maybe at the very end of her life, when she began to see what was going on with Samuel, she said, oh, that's why I had to suffer. So that's why I had to sacrifice. But maybe she didn't know. She didn't care. She trusted God. Well, that's pretty good of Hannah, but you and I have something she didn't have. We have the cross. On the cross, I see that God brings life out of death and through suffering, his own suffering, He brings about all kinds of life in the world. Therefore, friends, you can trust him right now. If you are faithful to him and don't give up on God, but put God in the center of even during your suffering, like Hannah, God will turn it all to gold for you and for others. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of King Zedekiah of Judah in the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army and laid siege to it. In the fourth month, Of Zedekiah's eleventh year, on the ninth day of the month, the city was broken into. All the officials of the king of Babylon entered and sat at the middle gate. Nergal Sheretzer, Samgar, Nebersarachim, the chief of staff, Nergal Sheretzer, the chief soothsayer, 
and the rest of the officials of Babylon's king. When King Zedekiah of Judah and all the fighting men saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the city gate between the two walls. They left along the route to the Arabah. However, the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They arrested him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. The king passed sentence on him there. At Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all of Judah's nobles. Then he blinded Zedekiah and put him in bronze chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans sat next burned down the king's palace and the people's houses and tore down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported the rest of the people to ba- Babylon, those who had remained in the city and those deserters who had defected to him along with the rest of the people who remained. However, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Speaking through Nebuzaradan, captain of the guards, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon gave orders concerning Jeremiah. Take him and look after him. Don't do him any harm, but do for him whatever he says. Nebuzaradan, captain of the guards, Nebuchadnezzar, the chief of staff, Nergal Sheretzer, the chief soothsayer, and all the captains of Babylon's king had Jeremiah brought from the guards' courtyard and turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, to take him home. So he settled among his own people. Now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah when he was confined in the guards' courtyard. Go tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words for disaster and not for good against this city. They will take place before your eyes on that day, but I will rescue on that day. This is the Lord's declaration, and you will not be handed over to the men you dread. Indeed, I will certainly deliver you so that you do not fall by the sword, because you have trusted in me. You will retain your life like the spoils of war. This is the Lord's declaration. Psalm chapter 13, verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Psalm chapter 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness 
by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now I want you to be una- I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice those things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Have mercy. Well, friends, I pray that the word of God today is an encouragement to you and that he would shine his light on you. Good day to you and Godspeed.